Well, Jerry, here we are once again, the wheelhouse, the first time since opening day. And, Jerry, this is the first wheelhouse from inside your office here at Safeco Field. This is fun, man. Thanks for joining us. Oh, what do you think? Do you well, like you know, it's been, I was the thinking, dates? It's been a little while since I've been in your office, and there's a lot of things that I think the listeners need to know about. First of all, you have... I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know how to play chess if my life depended on it, but you have like the coolest chess board ever. Can you describe this? Uh, the, the chess board is about 20 years old, maybe 25 years old. It was a gift, a Christmas gift from my kids before they could actually buy Christmas gifts. So, <laughs> which is to say my wife bought it and gave it to me on behalf of my children. But uh, it is from the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. It is the greatest players in the history of the American League, be the greatest players in the history of the National League. With the the pawns being the original teams, you know the logos of the original teams in the American and National Leagues at that time. It's 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 a really neat set. It's more you know eye candy than actual actually usable because I'll forget which pieces are which. So I, I, I'll play I'll play chess on my on my handheld <laughs> and look at the board. You know. Well, I, I, the Stan Musial piece caught my eye to begin with, but uh, that is a that is very cool. Uh, we have been told about your autographed baseball collection with the Mariners niche. And I can see you have, uh, I don't know, a couple of dozen in uh, clear cubes uh, on your bookcase and above uh, your desk. This is exactly what you described. I, I'm a fairly descriptive fellow. And I, I think uh, anything ranging from, you know, current day, the, the Robbie Cano's, Nelly Cruz, Felix group, to, you know, the original Mariners, Rupert Jones, on up to a Dave Niehaus ball sitting up on top of the, Very cool. the shelf. Now you have a Robbie Cano autographed jersey, I noticed, and you have a, a really cool a Nelson Cruz painting above uh, your desk. What, what, tell us the story on this. So 2016, Nelson Cruz hosted a, a, a charity event for his uh, his Boomstick Foundation, and and uh, the painting that you see on the wall was it was something that Nelly had commandeered uh, an artist to do an, uh, an oil painting of them. It's, it's terrific. I think very lifelike and, uh, and oddly enough went to the, to the, the auction at, at Nelly's fundraiser. Nobody was bidding on the painting. And I thought I, there's, I would like to hang that on the wall in my office. <laughs> so, you know, after asking my wife, if I could spend the money on the painting, I, I, I bid on it. Similarly with, with Robbie, you know, the RC 22 foundation and, and his charitable efforts, Got got the signed Robbie jersey and, and and Nelson Cruz jersey. Yeah, same same type of format. Where I'll go to their auctions, I'll go to their their functions, make a donation, and oftentimes just bid on their merchandise, their gear. I don't really go there with the idea of bidding on the the, the big poppy package, but more along the lines of pull out one of our guys and, and hang it on the walls here in the offices. Well, it's very cool. We were in your office plenty during spring training. Good to be at your office here at Safeco Field. And this has been really a very nice start to the season for the Mariners. We're recording this before Game 3 of the Astros series. Tomorrow's the final game of the homestand. Uh, what have been your overall impressions of how well the Mariners have played, despite being, as we all know, very shorthanded in many ways? Yeah, I mean, obviously we got out of the shoot really banged up. But anytime you win two out of every three games for a stretch of time, I'm taking that, <laughs> you know, it's a, as if you continue to do that through the course of a season, you're going to wind up in the postseason. That's a, that's generally how that works. But with, despite the injuries, we, we spent about a two week stretch right out of the shoot with half of our lineup on the DL and, you know, lost Nelson after the second half of the game, still waiting for Zanino to play or second game of the season, 
Still waiting for Zanino to play his first game. Uh, Ryan Healy played, struggled, had a huge hit for us in Minnesota and almost immediately took it to the house. And and now we're waiting for him to return. Still waiting for Erasmo Ramirez to throw his first inning. And, you know, I guess on a positive note, we have gotten off to a pretty good start. We've, we've, I think, played to the to the best of our abilities with such a shorthanded lineup in terms of offensive game. And I think that is attributable to the starts of D. Gordon, of Mitch Hanniger, Robinson Cano, Gene Segura, uh, you know, the contributions from Dan Vogelbach. It's been – and then sneaky contributions from guys like Taylor Motter and David Freitas and, and ways that they've contributed at the bottom. And what I think has been a fairly effective back of the bowl game, bullpen, you know, with, with Diaz, despite some occasional hiccups with Nicasio, with Dan Altavilla, with Nick Vincent. The guys are hanging in there. They're making their pitches. I think Chasen Bradford's done a remarkable job. And and here this last trip through the rotation, I believe we're starting to stabilize with the starting rotation getting on turn and being able to start on an every fifth day basis rather than waiting six or eight days because of either weather in Minnesota or a, a, a disproportionate number of off days scheduled in the first three weeks of the calendar. Well, we have plenty that we'd like to cover with you today, and we want to kind of dig deep in a couple of things. But first of all, I need to know your impressions of the Vogel bomb over the hit it here sign. Now, did it? Do you know? Did that actually damage the sign? Like, did it scrape the top of the sign? Oh, it didn't scrape anything. It, it, it just did, full impact. It was a pure flyby. You know. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this or have heard this reference before, but Daniel Vogelbach does bear some resemblance to Chris Farley. Uh, There's a picture is, somewhere out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, Vogie, Vogie actually has a rookie dress up. You know, this is when hazing was allowed. <laughs> yeah, he was like, the, he was the last. I think they saw the photo of Dan. And like, you know, this is banned throughout all of baseball. No, it is. But he, he was at one point dressed as uh, the Chippendales version of, of Chris Farley, you know, during that great Saturday Night Live skit. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you recall the movie Tommy Boy. Of course. Yeah, it's, it's on my list of things you must see from that that. that generation or genre movie and and uh the scene in which the deer busts out of the car you know and 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 chris farley turns around to to, to richard that you know is his, his travel mate and says that was awesome <laughs> that is that that was my reaction to the vogel bomb it was uh it, that was step ball was smoked it left the park and seconds and there's a it's one of those where when it's touched you hear you know i'm sitting 150 feet back and you can just hear the 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 smash when it hits his bat vogie can hit he did it in spring training he's done it the outset this year he wrote a little bit of a of a a tough wave as he tried to find at bats when nelson was was still playing and and healy was getting the the predominant number of at bats but i think bogey's done a remarkable job since day one of spring training and you know in some ways he's kind of saved our tail while we wait for ryan to get going there will be 90s night at the ballpark coming up and the upcoming homestand maybe some tommy boy up on the uh, video board on Mariner's Vision. Maybe we can work that in with some Vogie references. I mean, you're the general manager, Jerry. You can make that happen. I feel like we can make these things happen. I, I also feel like perhaps the single most exciting giveaway yes. in my time as the general manager here in Seattle is the James Packard. Yes, Pack I knew you were going to I was so hopeful. That it has his face on it. <laughs> what else could you want in a ballpark mean, giveaway? You're a big league GM, Jerry. You've pitched in the major leagues. You have and are having a phenomenal career. Jerry, I don't think you've ever sniffed a personalized fanny pack. So 
I don't know what that says about you or me or anyone else, but James is the only guy who's got something. So, as you know, as as a as a person who lived through the 1990s, and I, I lived through the 1990s with children, and and uh, you know, my kids saw on more than one occasion when it was an accepted social habit and after it was an accepted <laughs> social habit they have seen me don a fanny pack <laughs> no yes no, you're not yes so it happened through many trips to disney i had to have a place to stash the stuff and uh you know when when we got on the elevator last night my oldest daughter who's now 25 is uh is taking the elevator down with me last night and there is a there's, there's an advertisement for the james paxton fanny pack giveaway and, and she said pops you excited and I said, you have no idea. There's, I, I've been waiting for now two decades for this moment to come back around. And not only is it coming back around, but it's coming back around with a big Maple's face <laughs> plastered all over it. <laughs> now, you know, I mean, this, this podcast has wide reach, Jerry. You know that, right? I'm, I mean, I'm people aware, people the, will know about this. I embrace this embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing that there has to be photos. Graphic evidence of you with the fanny pack. Indeed, there is. Yeah, not the, the not the, not the most embarrassing photographic evidence of, of poorly executed socially accepted habits, but one of the I can guarantee you that they exist. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not going to push for the digging through the personal Depoto archive of the photograph, but I know many people who now will. So you don't have to push. My wife will volunteer. Oh, she'll do it. it. Okay. Yeah, well, no I think that will probably be up on Mariner's Vision at some point. <laughs> Uh, during James Paxton Fanny Pack Night. Paxton was one of the guys I was really eager to talk to you about because obviously we've seen his last two starts, what, 17 strikeouts, right? Tied a career best two starts to go with 10. The slider, okay, he calls it a cutter. Scott calls it a slider. James even admits that it really is a slider, but between his ears, he needs to call it a cutter. That was a pitch that we didn't have not seen him use with the volume that we have the last two or three outings. And I don't know, maybe the same with the effectiveness that we've seen it. What have you made of James Paxton's slider? Let's call it his last three starts. No, I, I mean, first, the usage of it has, has probably been ramped up two or three times the normal usage. The, the pitch itself has been awesome in the last two outings. And sometimes as a pitcher, and I, this one I can speak from some level of experience, that the as a pitcher you'll get the feel for a pitch and to me you roll with it so and uh you know mike leak has both the curveball and a slider he'll go out there on a given day he might not have both in his quiver so you pick the one that feels right and uh, in pax's case the cutter his slider has been going so good for these last two outings that he's just standing on it and when you find a pitch that's working well it's matching up with, with hitters I think some of it is probably that if we tap back to his first outing versus Cleveland, he had so much difficulty with fastball command, and he had so much difficulty in, in striking his, his curveball that in his next outing, he used a disproportionate number of cutters or sliders to find his release point, and I think he found something with his cutter or slider that has allowed him to get in a groove. I, for one, appreciate. Do you, in your eyes, is it more of a slider or more of a cutter? Not to add more confusion to all this. I'd say, I think it's a cutter. You know, really? I think, okay. I do. And and part of the reason I think it's a cutter because he throws it so hard. And, you know, it's a, there's you look at Lance McCullers, you know, who threw against us last night with, with the Astros. Lance throws an 86 to 90 mile an hour knuckle curveball. Hard for me not to qualify that as a slider when it's that hard because in my mind's eye, I can't remember anybody ever throwing a curveball that hard. Similarly with Pax, he's throwing that that 
cutter so hard, that slider so hard, you know, and, and frankly, when you can hit 90 miles an hour or 91 miles an hour with a slider at, at a certain point, it just becomes a cutter and it occasionally tilts. He has such great angle to his pitches. Uh, his ball, let's from, from arm to, to the point where it crosses home plate. James has a very steep angle to his pitches. Therefore, even when the, when the, the slider cutter that he's throwing doesn't tilt or break downward, it gives the appearance that it does because it's on a steep downward decline. So it's a, it, it's a power pitch. I think the reason why mentally he references, references as a cutter is because he wants to stand on it and power through the ball. Whereas if you're trying to create break with a pitch, you're generally going to feel it a little bit more in your fingertips and get out in front and try to feel a pitch. I don't think James views the, the slider cutter as a pitch he's going to feel his way into. He's just going to power it. Because James is... Is it true for Paxton that, I mean, he really is a very mechanical pitcher in his approach, right? When you think of a guy like Felix, you think of a guy, and Mel's talked about this a hundred times, he has just tremendous feel for all these pitches that he throws. But for James, I mean, he is he is very studious. He's very mechanical. Is that fair to say? Very. And, uh, and very in tune with his own delivery, mm-hmm. game plans, pitch executions. You know, I think they're, they're both so, so different. You know, very successful in, in what they do, but so, so different. Are, are you, have you seen the artists who, who they'll look at a blank canvas and just start slapping paint around until you see an image appear and, and you think, oh my goodness, that is a, that's, that is a, a gorgeous bust of Aaron Goldsmith. Thank you. Yeah. It, it happens. That's Felix. Felix Felix can throw the paint at the wall and a picture will appear. Pax is more along the lines of look at the look at the model, you know, sit there and and copy what he's seeing meticulously. Maybe there's know, a protractor the involved. Lines. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 he thinks his way through it and it, it's uh he's he's very prepared. I would say one of the most prepared players we have. Uh and certainly among the pitchers in our clubhouse, nobody takes more care in making sure that the 4 days that they spend prior to their outing and then the execution of that outing is is as meticulous as Pax. And you know, and in this case, I think that's a great model for for the other pitchers on the staff to, to follow. But it's not for everybody. And, you know, for James, it works. And if his mechanics are off in the first inning, oftentimes it's going to take him 40, 50 pitches of looking relatively uncomfortable to click. And then when he clicks, he can roll for six weeks at a time until until the mechanics come unglued again. And he has to get back into himself, truly. We'll switch gears a little bit and talk about the lineup some. Uh, when Nelson Cruz was out, the top third of this Mariners lineup was on as good of a roll as any other team in baseball. It still is, but there was more. I think there was more focal point to it without Nelson Cruz necessarily right behind it. But what have you made of the trio of D. Gordon, Gene Segura, and Robinson Cano? Well, I, th- I think you could even throw Hanny on there sure, in the back yeah. end. For the time that Nelly was out, those four guys were awesome. And toward the tail end of Nelson's, uh, I guess, 
absence, Kyle Seeger really stepped forward, mm-hmm. and and this is the best April version of Kyle we've ever seen. And, he, and he's swinging the bat like he swings it. Uh, but, you know, the top three guys in the order from the very get-go, uh, D has been an igniter from the moment he stepped out there in, on the very first day of spring training. The level of energy, the quality in the at-bat, I think he went 12 games into the season, uh, getting a hit in every right. game. And I don't know about you guys, but it seemed like he was uh, – he was getting that hit to start the game right. almost every time. And and as a result, we were a threat in the first inning, and there's nothing quite like putting immediate pressure on your opponent. And, you know, when D. Gordon's on first base, it, it doesn't even require a stolen base for him to create chaos. They know he's over there. The pitcher's distracted. The number of throwovers to first base, the way the defense has to situate to protect against him doing what he does on the bases, you know, that coupled with the fact that, you know, Gene can just hit and, and always has been able to just hit. I think it took him a couple of days to acclimate to to D's presence on the bases because there's a there's a nuance to hitting second when you have a leadoff hitter who is on base and steals bases you know you have to have some feel for when he might be going so that you can give him the pitch you've got to be willing to take an occasional strike which is not always gene's preferred option (laughs) and and allow d to get some action going on the bases and get into scoring position how many times have we seen D on the move, Gene put a ball in play, and now all of a sudden we've got runners on first and third and nobody out? And I think we have seen the single most patient version of Robinson Cano that that I ever, ever recall seeing, certainly in his time with the Mariners, but in all the time I've watched Robbie play. He has had more of a mature approach to the strike zone than, than I've ever seen. And it's the way he's taking close pitches, the way he's making them come into his hot zone, and then the damage he's doing to the ball when they do come in. is it, The velocities of, of – I mean, his exit velocities in the early season have really stood out. The frequency with which he's barreling pitches, the infrequency with which he's chasing outside of the strike zone, and the willingness to take strikeouts or take walks without piling up strikeouts. It's uh, You know, he didn't hit a home run until last night. And, and I still thought it was about the best two-and-a-half-week stretch we'd seen from Robinson Cano dating back to the first half of 2016. And I didn't mind seeing him hit the ball over the fence last night. But what a tough yeah, pitch, right? Really tough pitch. And, and he smoked that last, the last ball of the game that Gurriel turned into a double play. Mm-hmm. But Robbie's been in a great place and has been since really since opening day. And, and that was with an abbreviated spring training. So those, those top three guys have been incredible table setters, and I think Hanny and Seeger have been the benefactors. So for the part of our listening audience that like to nerd out on fan graphs, if you look at, you mentioned the chase rate, swinging outside the zone for Robbie. If you look at so far this year, and granted it's still extremely early, but from what we've seen from him relative to his first year in a Mariners uniform, I mean, it's down 10%. In your eyes, how significant is 10% decrease on chasing outside the strike zone? I think it's a, I think it's real, and now we're 15 games into the season. It's still a small sample size, and, and we have to realize it's a small sample size. And I don't know that we're seeing a paradigm shift in the way Robinson Cano goes about orchestrating it at bat. But I do think that as players work their way through the various stages of their career, 
you can't help. It's kind of like it, it's it's the way you grow in life. You learn things. You mature as you go. You pick up nuances along the way that you're able to apply. And you tend not to make the same mistakes twice. Otherwise, you just don't stick around. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, Robbie is picking up on on a variety of different things, not the least of which is just in the in the batter's box. As you get there's Robinson is still in his performing prime despite the fact that he's in his mid-30s and usually when hitters of that ilk get move into their mid-30s you see one of two shifts they either start swinging at more pitches than they've ever swung at before because they're they're panicking because the bat doesn't move as quick as they want it to or they slow it down and start isolating the the pitches that they'll swing at I think we're seeing Robinson shift toward the ladder while he still has the bat speed to do all the damage that he's done in his prime, which I think is why if here 15 games into the season, you're looking at a thousand OPS, despite the fact that he's only hit one homer. Well, I, I found it fascinating that roughly two weeks into the season, he was certainly leading all of baseball in OPS without a home run at that point. I mean, he had at that point, I don't know, like a dozen walks or something, but I When's the last time you've ever seen something like that happen? Granted, only two weeks into the season. But he's on base all the time. All the time. I, probably the last time I saw a guy enter the 13th or 14th game of the season with an on-base percentage of 600. <laughs> right. I mean, it was a, it was notable number. And last night, prior to, the, I guess it was his third at-bat, just after his third, his third at-bat, Robbie was one for three with a homer. You know, and think about that. If if that is your season, you hit three thirty three with a homer. He's one for three with a homer, and his OPS dropped by almost eighty points. <laughs> so it's a, and he had, and that was his first homer of the year. So you know, whether it's the fact, like as usual, Robbie is a real threat to hit doubles. The fact that he was walking at an exceptionally high rate and allowing him. So I think Robinson came into last night's game where I'm looking at guys who have been on base a fair bit and they've just not scored very many runs. Robbie came into to the game last night averaging close to a run scored per game that we've played, which is a pretty phenomenal achievement. You mentioned the two different routes that a hitter can get to once they have racked up some playing time uh, for Robbie. Is the same could be said about Nelson Cruz, his approach in terms of isolating a zone it seems like he doesn't he's not a guy who chases a whole lot no and you'll see that if you look nelson's best years have been in in his mid now yes. into his late 30s and a lot of that is because he started isolating the strike zone as he worked through you could take a trip back 10 years when nelson may have otherwise been you know no, normally players experience the primes of their career between the ages of 26 and 32 you know, I, I think in, in Nelly's case, he's experiencing that much later than most players do. And if you look at the, the way it's happening, I think it's happening because of the control over the strike zone that he's experiencing. Robinson is one of those timeless players that just had – he's had an extraordinarily long prime, you know, and, and the beat continues to go on. That's uncommon, and, and and that's what Hall of Famers do, frankly. Sure. And, I, and I don't think any of us believes we're not looking at a Hall of Fame player. You know, Nelly did it in a very different way. He did it as a as a threatening young player with big power who was going to hit a couple of bombs, who was probably going to miss from time to time, and they would walk him just simply because they didn't want to feed into his power. Now, and I, and I think I may have mentioned this to you in, in some earlier version of, of conversation, you know, in, in 2016, when for a period of time we really didn't have a solution at, at leadoff, 
Nelson volunteered to hit leadoff for us. And, uh, and he said, come on, Jerry, look, I'm an on-base guy. And <laughs> he's right. And, and I think that would be fun in a George Springer-ish kind of way. Sure, right. But I guess only if you're playing against the Mariners, not for them. <laughs> uh, that, well, hey, Chris Davis led off uh, for a little while for the Orioles. I don't know if that's still going on, but uh, I don't know. If I would, Nelson uh, breaking to second base uh, on a hit and run would be something that I don't know. If, a but, sight to behold, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> Hey, you know, it's, it, there's, there are a few things that I love more in baseball life than an immaculate inning. We've talked about this, Edwin Diaz, an immaculate inning in spring training, which I didn't care if it was spring training. To me, that was still that was the coup de grace. Uh, when I am on TV uh, as opposed to on a radio, there is someone in our truck every time Diaz is out pitching, and the first time he throws a ball in an inning, he gets in my ear and goes, not tonight, because I know, <laughs> uh, because I know uh, how obsessed I am with the immaculate inning. The spring training that we saw from Edwin Diaz was as good of a spring as any guy can have. Uh, what have you made of Edwin Diaz so far? I mean, through the first 14 games of the season, he had saved half of them. Has been as good as anybody in the league. And, and I can't speak from having seen the others in the league. You just can't be better than sure. he's been through this this early part of the season. Now he's he's striking out better than two an inning. He's he's dominating the strike zone. I think last night walked just his second hitter of the year, and uh, you know he appears to me to have matured. You know, 2016 when when Edwin came to the big leagues, we have to remember that he was only, I mean, really days before his major league debut, we'll call it a couple of weeks, uh, transitioned from a starter to a reliever. And came to the big leagues and within, I would say, three, four weeks was closing games for the major league team and wound up turning in a dynamic rookie year, largely, I think, through pure stuff and the element of surprise. The league was not familiar with him. He was confident and freewheeling enough in, in his own skin to to have fun with it and roll, and he let the you know the occasional blown save roll off his back. Last year, I think we saw a young player that was trying to evolve in his role. He was trying to re- refine the command of his slider. More importantly, he was trying to refine the command of his fastball while he was pitching perhaps in the highest profile role on the club. You know, pitching the ninth inning is a tough role to pitch or to play, particularly as a young player. This year, I think we're seeing the newest evolution of, of Edwin, which is mature Edwin Diaz. He's uh, he's now done this for, for two seasons. He knows that we trust him. He knows that he's good. Uh, and more importantly, the consistency with which he's been repeating his pitches and the infrequency with which we've seen those spray it around 3-0, counts. You know, opening day was a little harrowing against the Indians, and he worked his way through it. And frankly, I think that triggered him or served as a, a, a jumping point for him to get off to the kind of start he has. Because in that moment, he saw through it in front of a big crowd and in in a situation where oftentimes in 2017 it didn't end well for Edwin or for us. He got through it. He made it happen. And here we are. 14 games later, we're 9-6, we're and six, and we're 9-6 and six because Edwin Diaz is pitching the ninth inning. Is there ever a problem with a young pitcher who has absolutely devastating stuff like Diaz wanting to go out there and with every pitch embarrassing a big league hitter? I mean, 
really wanting to just embarrass a guy because he has that kind of ability to do that. Is that something that can get a pitcher into trouble? Without question. And and I would tell you most guys that have ever pitched, regardless of if they have the dominant type stuff of Edwin Diaz, have experienced that in a moment. It, and it's it's why I, I like history or time will tell you or to – to stand off. It's almost like the Robinson Cano learn as you go. We've talked a lot about the evolution of Felix Hernandez. I'm sure there was a time when Felix Hernandez and, and, and as a young 20 something buck was out there trying to embarrass every hitter. I'm also certain that there's a time as a 30, 31, 32 year old buck that Felix is, is out there trying to embarrass a hitter when he knows he has you down. That's a natural when you are used to being dominant, like these guys can be, it's a natural feeling. And what I think you're seeing from Edwin now is rather than when he gets ahead of that hitter 0-2, and this is I guess where the, the, the dream of the immaculate inning comes to pass, is instead of when he gets ahead of them 0-1 or, or 0-2, he's not trying to drill that slider you know, down off their back foot or throw the 101 mile an hour fastball in the perfect location you know, by them or just embarrass them in that way. He's just trying to, to, to rifle another down and away fastball and let's get this on and and I think we've seen as a result so many three and four pitch at bats where he's just he's picking them up and putting them down and moving them along and as a result instead of the 36 pitch wrestling match we have we, we it looks to be an efficient pitch making closer with the same high end stuff who has really dominated the strike zone in the early going and I don't think he's doing it because he wants to embarrass them I think he figured out how to <laughs> there's a difference there a, a pitching conversation I'm I'm interested to have with you and is a topic that Mike Blowers and Dan Wilson and I had on the air the other night this idea of a starting pitcher saving a pitch for the second or maybe possibly the third time through the order with the notion of, well, if this is one of your better pitches, should you use it earlier? Should you save it for later? And if you're planning on saving it and now you're in some barbed wire, do you pull it out of your pocket sooner than expected? What's kind of your overall viewpoint on, and certainly every pitcher is a little bit different and what that pitch might be, but the overall concept of that, how do you go about approaching that with a starting pitcher? Well, I think through my baseball lifetime, for most of my baseball life, even prior to playing professional baseball, that was always not an accepted uh, outcome, but urged. Is you get out there as the starting pitcher, you know, first time through, you're going to work your way through with fastball location, move it in and out. You don't want to introduce all of your pitches too quickly. Now, in the age of bullpenning and mm-hmm. and shorter outings, and you know fewer 200 inning pitchers than at any point in, in major league history truly and in, in today's time it's get out there and empty it just to just fill the magazine and empty it and whatever you've got to do to work your way through that lineup two times make it happen uh, and on the good nights you're going to get through a third time I, I think you use your pitches you use what's at your disposal you don't try to plan for the eighth inning you know, you work your way through this inning. It's similar with a with a manager or coaching staff. You know, when you can win today's game, win today's game, worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Get the three outs that are in front of you in that moment and worry about the next inning in the next inning. And when it comes time for you to hand the baton to the to the reliever who might come in in the sixth inning or in the seventh inning, 
do it proudly. Hey, I did what I was asked to do. And and I think you'll see maybe the Houston Astros are world champs for a reason. They do it as well as anybody. They, they introduce their pitches. They stand on it. You know, you, you'll see Lance McCullers on a given night out there throwing 70 percent curveballs because we can't hit his curveball. <laughs> we, we've proven it. And, and and as a result, you know, on the days where he's got command of his curveball, he's going to be very difficult for anyone, but particularly for us. And, and uh, you know, to take that out as a game plan is a really smart move. And, you know, similarly with our pitchers, I, I, I would say that they, they don't and they shouldn't keep anything in the bag. Uh, I would say that that's something we're trying to work through with a couple of our guys who may still be pre-wired to, to hold on to something for that next time through when you don't really need to. Go go out and get them out. And if, if today you've got 15 outs in the bag, then give us 15 outs and we'll try to take care of the rest for you. And, uh, and we'll do this as a relay team rather than asking you to plan ahead for what might happen in the 7th or 8th. Because I think the game has now shown us that more often than not, they're not going to be out there in the 7th or 8th anyway. And I was curious about that. Is that something that is – verbally communicated by Scott to a starting pitcher, hey, we want you to go two times for the order. Is that something that is just implied by the way baseball is played today? Or a guy like Paxton, we know that Paxton's pitch limit is almost endless within reality. Uh, is it just different from guy to guy? It's different from guy to guy. Sometimes it'll be communicated. Sometimes it's it's not. You know, I think when, when Paxton or particularly Felix, Mike Leak take them out, you know, our expectation is that they can get the ball through the seventh inning. And, you know, and, and when they come up short of that, it's not naturally by design. But they're not coming up short with it because they didn't introduce their pitches. Uh, you know, and they all do it in a slightly different way. James Paxton, like you said, it's almost an infinite pitch. Right. He throws harder the more pitches he throws. It's a, You might see James Paxton's highest velocities of a game when he's at his you know, 85th, 95th, and 105th pitches, whereas most guys are peaking more around 30 or 35 pitches. Uh, you know, it, I don't think it's any less uncomfortable to face James Paxton the third time than it is the first time. Felix is Felix is emptying the, the, the magazine. He's throwing all of his pitches almost immediately. You know, and similarly with Mike Leak, Mike has a little bit of finesse to him where on a given day, if if a pitch doesn't feel quite right, he might just tuck it on the shelf and focus on these three. And he has a real smart way about him and how to sequence his pitches. And probably makes more use of, of his fastball and than even guys that throw 95 miles an hour because he can do different things with it. He can cut it. He can sink it. He can locate it. But they all get there in a different way. You know, the, the rest, I think, especially with guys like Erasmo, with Marco, with Ariel Miranda, you know, they have to be a little more creative in, in, in how they sequence or use their pitches and not worry about what getting the ball to, to the guy in the eighth inning. It's get this hitter out, and then I'll worry about the next hitter when he comes out. Jerry, if you think my questions have been tough, let's get to some listener questions. Remember, you can always email the show, thewheelhouseatmariners.com, and we'll see if Colin likes you enough to pick your question to be answered by the general manager. Well, uh, Colin selects Brian Perkins today, and uh, Brian is chiming in from Idaho. As uh, he says that we have uh, helped get him through some winter months in Idaho, which I can imagine that would be the case. Uh, he wants to know how major league moves affect teams in the minors, right? There's certainly a trickle-down effect. Minor league teams, especially at the higher levels, AA, AAA, how do they replenish their rosters, Jerry, in the middle of the season when a major league team, in this case the Mariners, is calling up prospects, needing replacements uh, seemingly overnight? 
how do you go about doing this when, uh, hey, there's got to be a certain limit to the number of players that are out there, right? There definitely are limits. Uh, <laughs> and I can give you, because last year was so creative uh, for us or unique for us, we had to be very creative in how we addressed it. You have in the Mariner system at any given point in time, you're going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 200, 220 players. And that is from the Dominican Summer League on through the, the, the Mariners, and that includes everybody on a, on a disabled list. And as players get hurt, for instance, we go down and we will we'll call up uh, we call up Taylor Motter when when a player goes down and and he becomes the new 25th man on the club. Every time that happens, a shuffle happens throughout the system where everybody moves up a level. Oftentimes, when we think it's going to be a short term move, so if we think that that call up is going to be a two or three day band aid, then frequently what we'll do is we'll send a player from the Arizona complex the guys who are down there for extended spring or even for the arizona summer league we'll send them directly to triple a have them experience triple a for two or three days sometimes they play sometimes they're just there for insurance and then we'll send them back the bills that we incur through the course of a season flying players around the country to take uh to take minor league positions is pretty incredible Last year, with the, the array of injuries that we had, it got so bad for a period of time that we spent more time with our pro scouts scouting in the independent leagues than they were writing reports on other teams' pro players because we had to go out. and we, we, we really ravaged the independent league rosters because we needed immediate help. We had so many injuries that required so many promotions from our system that we couldn't fill them within uh, we, because we were running out of players at the lower levels. So we just went out and we signed probably close to a dozen independent league players last year. And some of them are still in our system. They did a very nice job. A couple of things on that. First of all, my first job in baseball as a broadcaster was in the independent leagues. And I have to tell you, any time, and that year there were maybe two, one from the team I was working for, a player in the league was signed by a major league team. I mean, it was like somebody from... The show Lost was lifted off the island. I mean, it, it was like the biggest news. Oh, this guy, he's got a chance now. There's, he might actually eat a good meal tomorrow. Uh, I mean, it was like the biggest news imaginable. It, it, there was like a ticker tape parade for anybody. Who Escape got from Alcatraz. Yes, that's exactly what it felt like. Uh, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Do I imagine correctly, Jerry, that when you talk about the, the airline miles and the cost of all this, is there some... You know, Alaska Airlines credit card, uh, feel free to sponsor, uh, that <laughs> hashtag I fly Alaska, uh, that, that is just racking up like a half a million miles on it over the course of a season? Yes, <laughs> is the answer to that question. And, uh, you know, Jim Roach is our coordinator of player development. And the travel in and out for all of our players is, is Roach's thing. That's, that's what he's overseeing. Now, Andy McKay and I will speak on a regular basis. Uh, sometimes it's Jeff Kingston. So one of the three of us will communicate to Jim Roach what moves need to happen. We'll resituate the rosters, and sometimes we need to be creative. And most of Jim's 2017 summer was spent in front of uh, flight schedules trying to determine how to get players from Clinton, Iowa to Modesto, California in time for tomorrow night's game, which is not always as easy as it sounds. So you know, it's, uh, I give him credit. It was, uh, I think, with the, the volume of injuries we've had, there's, you know, Jim started his position late in 16 and 
and his experiences last year was first as a full-time employee in baseball. And he said, wow, I got to tell you, I really had to learn in the fire. And, and he's correct. It was a, it was a challenge, but you know, the, the, the corporate card that, that takes care of the Mariners baseball ops group uh, was heavily taxed last year. And the, the miles, the points, you know, parties at, at Jim's house, yes, I guess, exactly. is, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, Chris Farley and, and Vogie can make an appearance. Well, when, when Jim is flying round trip first class to Tahiti, I hope he sends you pictures on his free flights <laughs> uh, that he takes on a biweekly basis. Uh, okay, this is a great question uh, from Derek Westcott, and the nerd level on this is like pinging at 100, which makes it so great. Derek, thank you for this. Uh, Could he, it be nerdier than wearing James Paxton's face on a, on a fanny This pack? is great baseball nerdism. Uh, Colin, great job on this one. Uh, a recent piece from MLB.com after Chancisco. Remember, this was like the early controversy in baseball. Uh, the bunt single against the Twins cited StatCast data from last year that players successfully getting a bunt down against the shifts hit 568, a solid 250-plus points higher than the average BABIP. See what I tell you? Given the high success rate, uh, he'd love to know your thoughts, Jerry, on bunting against the shift, and why in the heck, Derek wonders, don't we see it happen more often? There's My initial answer to the question is it is much, much harder to bunt than you could ever imagine because of the velocities and movements on the pitches. It's just not that easy. So oftentimes one of the wonders about major really good, great major league baseball players, they make things look much easier than it actually is. It is basically, it's easy for me to go out and envision facing a high schooler throwing 78 to 82 miles an hour, generally flat and just putting a bat on it and putting it down on the ground. Having gone from the American League to the National League in my playing lifetime, you know, I was asked to go take batting practice, put bunts on the ground. And when they're throwing batting practice at 72 miles an hour, I could put down 10 straight sacrifice bunts. And then the very first time I was asked to do it in a game, and my first thought was, oh, my God, look how much that <laughs> ball moves. There's, you, you, it, it takes some touch. It takes some finesse. And, and truly, it takes a little bit of guts to hang in there and square around facing a pitcher who's throwing a ball. I don't know if you had the privilege on Root Sports of watching last night's uh, game with Houston, but there were a couple of pitches that Lance McCullers threw at 95, 96 miles an hour that were moving, I would say, no less than 15, 20 inches horizontally across the strike zone. And where it looked like it was a fastball away, and the next thing you know, it looks like it's going to hit the hitter in the belly button. And, and when you are asked to face a pitcher, like turn around and square up on him and just lay a barrel on the ball, it's a little bit disconcerting. So first answer is not as easy as it looks. You know, second is that most hitters, particularly those who can do damage, want to do damage. And for the most part, we want them to. So, you know, you get into that middle part of your order. When you get to the Canoes, the Cruises, the Seegers, you know, while 568, was it was that the number you quoted? Yeah, very, very yeah. nicely done, yes. So 568, if, if they can hit 568 and put the ball on the ground – I would not qualify any of the three as a as an adept bunter. I know they've all tried, but what I can say that they are adept at is hitting it over the the shifts. They're they're very good at that. 
So, you know, D. Gordon, Gene Segura, there's a reason why they don't see as many severe overshifts because they can do that. So oftentimes the reason why that 568 number exists is because the other team is inviting the Nelly Cruz, the Robbie Cano, the Kyle Seeger. Hey, you want to take your single? Go ahead. There's a much higher percentage chance that you're going to score or do damage if we if we pitch to you in this case. We'll just go ahead and give you the single base. I used to think that way every time I faced Barry Bonds. <laughs> yes, please. So what if I walk him? I know where he is. <laughs> You, you talk about how hard it is to put down a bunt. Mike has told this story, Mike Blowers, a number of times. In fact, he told it last night about how Lou sent him out to lay down a sacrifice bunt. And he fouled off the first pitch, 0-1. Before he knew it, Lou is pinch bunting for him. Mid at bat. Mid at bat. The next batter... Dropped down two foul balls and struck out. <laughs> <laughs> so Lou was furious at not only one guy, but two guys for not being able to put down a sack bump. And from a scorer's position or, or perspective, who gets credit for that strikeout? Ooh, I don't know the answer to that. Who is it? I believe it's the hitter who started the okay, at-bat, Mike gets but the I don't know out. for sure. Okay. Speaking of that, and I'll bring this in in a future podcast, I plan on ambushing Blow with it at some point this year. Uh, we found in the radio booth here at Safeco Field an old uh, Bill James handbook for the year, right, where he breaks down, like, every player in baseball. This doesn't not excite me. Uh, Yes. And Blower Power is in there. Oh, my. And the number of backhanded compliments to Blow in in one paragraph is incredible. Uh, But it did say that this the previous year, which is, of course, the numbers that Bill is going off of to write this, apparently – Blow slugged the highest number against lefties in the American League. Frank Thomas was second. So, you know, backhand complimenting me all you want. I'll pound those lefties all day long. So pretty good stuff. But I'll, I'll bring it in sometime. You'll enjoy it. I, frankly, I, 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 not only would you not have to ambush me on that one, I, if you ambush me on it, I ask you for a copy and I would blow it up <laughs> and hang it on the wall. You know, we do a segment on radio called Blowers on Baseball every day. And uh, most days, coming up with topics is no big deal. But every once in a while, you get kind of stuck in a rut because we're doing 162 of these after all. And uh, we're just keeping that in our back pocket for uh, a certain day on the radio where we just read that verbatim to blow and get his live reaction for it. We're pretty excited. Well, Um, hopefully he's not a a frequent listener to our podcast. Otherwise, the cat is out of the bag. You know what's funny about that? We were in When we were in Kansas City and somehow baseball memorabilia came up, and I mentioned your collection, your previous collection, which has now been somewhat subdued, but still an elaborate uh, memorabilia collection. And I was talking to Mike about it. And Colin, I'm sure, was very mad at me because I did not reference the podcast. I'm, Colin was fuming. I'm surprised he didn't text me. Plug the wheelhouse. <laughs> Subscribe on iTunes. Um, but, I, you know, I felt self-conscious, you know, like, have you guys heard of the podcast? Um and so Mike started asking me questions about your collection and the number of tweets that I got in a five-minute span of, well, Mike's never listened to your podcast. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if Blower Power is a podcast guy. He's a lot of things. I don't know if he's a podcast guy, but maybe we'll on a long flight we'll download one for him so we can listen to it. Uh, but we enjoyed talking about your memorabilia collection. That's we, for sure. we can give him the live version. We don't, we don't even need to go podcast. We can go <laughs> mute mics. That's much more his meat and potato style. 
Uh, well, to wrap things up, you know, each podcast, uh, we, we want to go around the horn quickly, take a look at some upcoming games here at Safeco Field. Mariners are going to be gone for another 10-day, 10 10-game 10 road trip, three-city trip. Mariners are back home. Some BECU value games May 1st or the 3rd. The A's will be in town. View and bleacher seats for only 15 bucks. Main and club seats, only 30 uh, May 4th is Star Wars night. First 20,000 fans, Jerry, take home the... Han Sego bobblehead. I trust you've seen photos must of this. Have, must have. Yeah, I think a, a autographed Han Sego bobblehead would look very nice in your collection here. Um, May 5th, 90s night. Uh, I think we would give that plenty of love. First 10,000 fans take home a... James Paxton fanny pack. <laughs> and Sunday, May the 6th, is Little League Day. All kids 14 and under take home a boom time LED watch. So good stuff there uh, coming up next home stand for the Mariners. Jerry, it's good catching up again. We know you're swamped. Thanks for the time, man. This has been a blast. Yeah, I missed it. We'll do it again soon. 